Hello and welcome to the Business Standard Morning Show. I'm Kanishka Gupta. It's the 12th of February 2024 and here are the questions we will be answering today. How will Uttarakhand's UCC change things? Can InsurTech drive up insurance penetration in India? Will SEBI's new disclosure norms affect FII flows? And what is CAR T-cell therapy? After a two-day discussion, Uttarakhand Assembly has passed the Uniform Civil Code Uttarakhand Bill 2024. It will subsume personal laws of all the religions. Marriage, divorce, inheritance of property, etc. will come under one common umbrella. So what will this proposed law change? Shivam Tyagi answers. On 6th January 2024, Uttarakhand's Chief Minister Pushkar Singh Dhami made headlines by introducing the much-debated Uniform Civil Code or UCC in the State Assembly. The UCC proposes to standardize laws regarding marriage, divorce, succession and live-in relationships across all communities in the state. The new bill aims to replace various existing laws applicable to respective communities which are inconsistent with each other. However, the legislation excludes the scheduled tribes that comprise 2.9% of the state's population. The Uniform Civil Code proposes changes to succession laws, aiming to standardize them across religions. Currently, Muslims can allocate one-third of their property via a will, with the rest following Quranic norms to avoid complete disinheritance. The proposed UCC eliminates restrictions on the portion of property that can be passed on through a will. It also prohibits polygamy and sets a minimum marriage age of 18 for women and 21 for men. For Hindus, the Uniform Civil Code changes the succession laws. It removes the Hindu law's distinction between ancestral and self-acquired property. It also overlooks the co-personary rights under the Hindu Succession Act 1956. Under Hindu law, being born in a Hindu undivided family or HUF, grants one the automatic legal rights to ancestral property, making him or her co-personal from birth. This means that a Hindu individual does not have the authority to independently sell a joint family property if his descendants are alive. However, in the context of self-acquired property, an individual has the freedom to dispose it of as he sees fit. Senior advocate Mihip Singh explains what happens to co-personality rights under the UCC. Under the Hindu Succession Act, it said it held that a property can only be held either as a co-personer or as a self-acquired property. Right? The bill or the Uniform Civil Code, which uh, the objective of this of this law is to create equality among gender, to create equality among uh, brothers and sisters and to create equality even with respect to co-personal and a self-acquired property. It is aiming to do away with the co-personary system and it is trying to extend the same scheme of succession to all people irrespective of religion. So therefore, all property will pass on as an individual property as per the scheme of interstate succession, which has been laid down by the code. And the benefits of being a co-personal to that extent have been 
attempted to be done away with. Further, the UCC bill does not specifically consider Hindu undivided families as a distinct category. HUFs currently hold legal recognition as a trading entity treated separately for taxation purposes under the Income Tax Act 1961 with certain exemptions. A 2018 report by the Law Commission has indicated that HUF system could potentially be exploited for tax avoidance. Senior advocate Sanjay Hegde elaborates on the tax implications of the UCC. The Uttarakhand uh, bill does not touch the HUF system. The HUF is a matter of central legislation, the Income Tax Act, which provides for HUFs and uh, for a separate uh, taxing entry for HUFs apart from the individual. Uttarakhand's uh, bill doesn't touch it, so there is no impact whatsoever. Even people within Uttarakhand can continue with their HUFs. Current succession laws in India are governed by the Indian Succession Act 1925, the Hindu Succession Act or HSA 1956 and non-codified Muslim personal law. Uttarakhand's proposed UCC has prompted other BJP states like Rajasthan and Gujarat to consider introducing similar laws in the future. But can state laws override central laws? No state law can supersede a central law. However, the basis of this no is that our, our, the Article 246 of the Constitution of India, it delineates the distribution of legislative powers between the central government and the state government. Now, Hindu Succession Act 1956 or the acts which you just named, they form part or or they the the, the laws of inheritance and succession uh, which are stipulated in those acts they are a central law which has been devised by the parliament of india now when such a law is there in place article 254 comes into picture which says that inconsistency between laws made by the parliament and laws made by the legislature the laws made by the parliament would prevail. The proposed UCC law also mandates the registration of live-in relationships in Uttarakhand. Failure to register within a month may result in a maximum penalty of three-month imprisonment. The law also requires live-in partners under 21 to notify their parents upon registration. While some legal experts suggest the registration may protect live-in partners from harassment, others argue that it would only invite more trouble for couples. This law is also has extraterritorial jurisdiction. If you happen to be a resident of Uttarakhand, but living away from Uttarakhand, even if you enter into a live-in relationship, you still have to register it and you go to the nearby registrar and hope that he then transmits it to the registrar in Uttarakhand. So a girl from Dehradun who has taken up a job in Bangalore and then decides that uh, she wants to be in a live-in relationship or she wants to share accommodation, she would after a month have to compulsively register. So uh, I that's why I said all these things are not practical. So the mere fact of registration is no form of protection. And it also doesn't protect you from any harassment. No landlord is is obliged to give uh, flats on rent 
to people who are registered uh, as live-in partners. All that will happen is that you will actually invite further, uh, further harassment. Legal experts believe that the UCC law is a positive step toward harmonizing inconsistent existing laws. However, its acceptance by the citizens it affects remains uncertain. After the personal loss, let us now see what is happening in India's insurance sector. Insurance penetration in the country is likely to reach 4.5% by 2034, up from the current 3.8%. But it is still very low when compared to the developed nations like the US. An even greater adoption of technology has not been able to increase the penetration. InsurTech platforms have been around for a while now, but the idea has not taken off as expected. Shivam Tyagi and Ayush Mishra tells more. Swiss research firm Swiss Re Institute indicates that the insurance sector in India is expected to see the highest growth rate among G20 nations. Its projections indicate an average increase in insurance premiums of 7.1% from 2024 to 2028. This growth far surpasses the global average of 2.4% for the same period. Life insurance premiums are expected to grow by 6.7% between 2024 to 2028. The non-life is estimated to witness an 8.3% growth. On the other hand, health insurance premiums are expected to increase by 9.7% during the period. The industry is optimistic to grow on the back of a burgeoning economy, an expanding middle class, and increasing adoption of InsurTech. InsurTech encompasses technological innovations aimed at enhancing efficiency and reducing costs within the insurance industry. Despite the positive impetus, the overall insurance penetration in India, as of FY24, is expected to be only 3.8% in India, compared to 6.5% globally. In developed economies like the US and Canada, this number is over 11%. On the other hand, penetration for life insurance in India for FY24 is projected to be at 2.9% and for non-life at 1%. Despite rapid growth, India faces a substantial urban-rural penetration gap. With over 65% of the population residing in rural areas, less than 10% have life insurance and less than 20% have health coverage. Rahul Meena Mishra of InsurTech startup Policy Insure explains why insurance penetration remained a challenge in India. There are two three things which still is a major issue and bottleneck for the insurance industry. One is the lack of awareness. 70% of population lives in tier two, tier three towns and rural. They are not aware what is insurance is all about, why insurance should be taken, what is the benefits of insurance. And secondly, it is a problem of the industry is the policy wordings. Policy wordings are very complex documents, like extend to five, seven pages, you know, a common man like you and me, it's very for us, especially for people like us also, it's tough to understand each and every wording, which creates 
lack of trust. Even if the person buys, there is still lack of trust in the back of our mind, whether he will get his claim or not. Claim settlement process is also complex in nature. Although a lot of cashless things are happening, especially in auto insurance and to, to an extent uh, health insurance. But still, there is a in back of mind, subconsciously, people feel, why should I take insurance? I will not get a claim. InsurTech is one of the potential drivers of increasing insurance penetration in India. Startups in the sector are also seeing continued interest from investors. According to a report, between 2018 and 2022, Indian InsurTech startups raised $2.6 billion. 90% of this funding has gone into B2C InsurTech players. Echo, Insurance Deco and Turtle Mint have received multiple rounds of funding from investors in recent years. While interest is brewing in InsurTech, industry observers say the sector needs more innovation to improve the overall life cycle of products. Animesh Das of Echo answers if InsurTechs can improve insurance penetration in India. When we say InsurTech, I think we need to understand that it's not just the distribution part of it or you're not just digitizing the existing methods or existing traditional setup. You have to solve end-to-end, -end, which means distribution, the customer experience, the way operations have to be elevated. All those things should be part of the InsurTech. You have to solve customer life cycle, starting from their acquisition or even the brand positioning. You have to come out to be a brand which is very strong, which is very exciting, which is genuinely understanding their problem statement, solving it properly, till the life cycle of a user where you are giving them claims, uh, renewing them, figuring out how, how they keep uh, kind of uh, sticky to you, right? And 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 uh, can they buy more products from you, right? And find you exciting, right? So all these aspects have to come together and not just the digitization part of it. Apart from InsurTech platforms, a lot depends on the point-of-sale person or the POSP model. This physical distribution model was introduced by the Insurance Regulatory Development Authority of India in 2015 and has recruited over 1.4 million agents since its inception. Experts believe that a combination of digital and physical selling augurs best for the industry. It has to be a combination of both technology and the physical presence on the ground. Technology brings in transparency. Person on the ground in tier two brings in the trust. So this transparency plus trust will help in increasing the insurance penetration. For example, a person living in remote town of Bihar or Uttar Pradesh will trust the local person. He will be having the face, but if the local person is equipped with his handheld technology application for sale and after sale service, then this is the ideal scenario when sales will also happen, after sales service will also happen, there will be trust and insurance awareness will also increase. In conclusion, while InsurTechs hold promise for improving insurance penetration in India, the sector continues to grapple with allegations of mis-selling and subpar customer experience. To achieve greater penetration, addressing its inherent transparency issues and building trust in point-of-sale persons are imperative steps for the industry. Meanwhile, in a piece of good news for the sector, a parliamentary panel has recommended reducing the GST on health insurance products for senior citizens below 18% to make it more affordable.
Moving on, markets regulator SEBI has sought granular ownership details from foreign portfolio investors with concentrated holdings in a single corporate entity. Failing this, such FPIs will need to liquidate their positions in the next six to seven months. In this report, Harshita Singh speaks to experts to find out how much of an impact the new norms could have on foreign inflows into Indian equities in the months ahead. Market regulator SEBI is following through with its proposal seeking granular ownership details of high-risk foreign portfolio investors or FPIs following the Adani Hindenburg saga last year. As per SEBI Diktat, FPIs with over 50% holding in a single corporate group or over 25,000 crore rupees exposure to Indian equities are required to disclose additional information about their ultimate beneficiaries from February 1. They further have six months to exit holdings or rebalance their portfolio in case they are unable to disclose the needed information. SEBI's initial estimates from March last year pegged FPI equity AUM of 2.6 trillion rupees or less than 1% of Indian market cap at risk of being impacted from the new norm. While analysts expect some foreign selling to happen in the next six to seven months, it is likely to be inconsequential for Indian markets. Will it going to impact the you know market uh, fund flow inflow in the market? So yes, the answer is yes. From F FII point of view, the fund outflow could be seen. In fact, when we take a look to the last seven months data, FIIs were the net seller for four months. As per reports, only a fifth of FPIs in breach of the SEBI specified criteria may need to provide enhanced disclosure, which is why any panic selling is unlikely ahead. A lot of uh, uh you know, reports and analysts were of confusion that the whole $6 billion needs to be, uh, you know, uh, will be get impacted and this $6 billion will face the selling. But that is not true. It's only 0.3% of that $6 billion which is going to get impacted. In any case, if they are not able to provide those disclosures, then also they have six months to sell off these holdings. So the actual impact is not uh, very big. It's only about, uh, I would say, one 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 point three billion dollars, not more than that. While analysts expect foreign inflows to be robust ahead, on likely U.S. Fed rate cuts from May, they also flag valuations as key risk. Uh, sometime in May now, since March is now off the table, so probably by May we should get a rate cut. And if that happens, then I think we'll continue to see uh, FPI inflows. Uh, domestically, also, we are expecting political continuity. Uh, so I don't expect too many negative surprises also till general elections are done. Uh, so uh, in general, I mean, FPIs are looking to uh, invest into India. It's just that they are not very comfortable with the current valuations at index level or the benchmark levels. Sharing this view, those at BNP Paribas also note that the rich valuations are a worry as FIIs are likely to explore underperforming and cheaper markets like China and Europe this year. Thus, the additional disclosure norms for select FPIs are unlikely to leave any major impact on foreign inflows into India, as earlier feared by some market participants. Today, on February 12, Dalal Street action will be guided by global queues ahead of latest CPI and IIP data.
he's making plans for an early retirement. Business Standard After the markets, let us now turn our focus to a new technology which is giving a big hope to those fighting cancer. CAR T-cell therapy successfully pulled three people out of cancer. Ayush Mishra tells more about this new form of treatment. The indigenous chimeric antigen receptor T-cell or CART cell therapy, a joint effort of ImmuneAct, IIT Bombay and Tata Memorial Hospital, recently achieved a breakthrough in cancer treatment. Since then, the therapy has been successfully conducted on 15 patients in India, with three of them experiencing cancer remission. While outside India, the therapy costs somewhere around 4 crore rupees. In India, it has gone through substantial cost reduction and can be availed at 40 lakh rupees. Nexcar 19, designed for B-cell cancers like leukemia and lymphoma, was approved for commercial use by the Central Drug Standard Control Organization in October 2023. It is an indigenously developed CD19-targeted CART cell therapy. CD19 is a biomarker for B lymphocytes and can be utilized as a target for leukemia immunotherapies. CART cell therapy marks a significant advancement in the complexity of cancer treatment, in contrast to conventional approaches like chemotherapy or immunotherapy that rely on mass-produced injectable or oral medication. CAR-T cell therapies utilize the patient's own cells. These cells undergo laboratory modifications to stimulate T cells, a subset of immune cells, prompting them to target and attack tumors. Following this modification, the enhanced cells are reintroduced into the patient's bloodstream after being conditioned to multiply more efficiently. In this treatment, the patient's blood is extracted to collect T-cells, integral immune cells responsible for eliminating tumor cells. In the laboratory, researchers alter these cells to express specific proteins called chimeric antigen receptors on their surface, which possess an affinity for proteins found on the surface of tumor cells. This structural modification enables scar cells to effectively attach to the tumor and initiate its destruction. The final phase of tumor eradication involves the patient's immune system clearing the tumor. In CAR T-cell therapy, the reintroduction of modified T-cells into the body activates the immune system, allowing for a gradual and sustained elimination of the tumor. CAR cell therapy demonstrates notable efficacy by substantially reducing drug-related toxicities and minimizing harm to neurons and the central nervous system. It also results in minimal cytokine release syndrome marked by controlled inflammation resulting from the targeted elimination of a significant number of tumor cells by CAR T cells, enhancing the overall therapy and safety of the patient. Trusted Bank, SBI, the banker to every Indian. A 64-year-old Army veteran, Dr. Colonel V.K. Gupta, was the first Indian to have benefited from CAR T-cell therapy. Well, that is all for today. For more news, views and analysis, please log on to business-standard.com. For more news, views and updates, Subscribe to Business Standard on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and Spotify. Also follow us on YouTube, Vimeo, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.